This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 20th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment has not had a good century, even though it is meant to protect us all against state violations of our individual rights. It has essentially been read out of the Constitution, but rumors of the death of privileges or immunities may have been greatly exaggerated. Josh Blackman is president and co-founder of the Harlan Institute. We spoke last week on Constitution Day. He co-authored the article on privileges or immunities in the latest edition of the Cato Supreme Court Review. This was an odd case in one respect because it produced a plurality opinion. Describe that and, and what it means for this case. Five justices did not sign on to the final opinion. While five justices, that was Chief Justice Roberts, Scalia, Alito, Kennedy, and Thomas, all voted to say that the Chicago gun law was unconstitutional, there was no f- single uh, five-vote block that agreed on the rationale. What happened was four votes where Kennedy, Roberts, Scalia, and Alito said it's unconstitutional because of the due process clause. Thomas, by himself, said that it was unconstitutional because it violated the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause. So because there's no single rationale that have that has five votes, somewhat of a paradox in that there's no real clear holding of why this case is decided the way it is. And that's the interesting aspect of a plurality. So in this particular case, because Thomas uh, wrote his sort of, I guess it's not a, it's, it's, concurring it's in a judgment. concurrence in the judgment, but not for the rationale, right. it sort of revives privileges or immunities in a way that uh, is, I guess, heartening in a sense that it occurred this way, and maybe the case itself is a little disheartening to fans of privileges or immunities because of some of the things that Scalia said and, and so the, some of the contents of the, uh, the opinion that was the plurality opinion. Well, uh, this is actually kind of a best-case scenario in a way. Um, Ilya Shapiro and I wrote an article in the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy before this case was decided, and we more or less predicted that there will be one vote for privileges and immunities, and that would be from Justice Thomas. The way Thomas wrote his opinion was that, most importantly, he did not grant that crucial fifth vote to due process. So going forward, privileges and immunities in play. It's open, it's fair game, and you can expect in the near future a lot of law reviews, professors, and even perhaps courts will start relying on this to perhaps protect certain civil rights that have not been located in due process, but they're more faithfully located in the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And as Ilya has pointed out to me, perhaps the most important thing is that law students will be reading this opinion for decades to come. This is this is going to be one of those really big cases. Um, the Privileges or Immunities Clause has been a dead letter since the 1870s from the famous Slaughterhouse case, which basically slaughtered the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It basically said that this clause has no meaning. It doesn't have any applicability outside of certain, uh, you know, insignificant rights like the right to protection of the high seas or the right to uh, visit the Treasury. For the first time in over 130 years, a Supreme Court justice has said this law means something. It has meaning. And because, uh, as Justice Kagan has re- recently said, we're all originalists now, it's of one degree or another, you're going to have a lot more research into what the original understanding of this clause was. What did it mean when it was written? How did people understand it? And going forward, you can be certain to see more litigation on it. The fact that Justice Thomas withheld that vote against due process really set the stage for it. And that's why I think this opinion is perhaps more important than most people realize. This was not a loss for, uh, this was not a loss for liberty. This was a win for liberty. As you and Alan Gura and Ilya Shapiro write in your article for the Cato Supreme Court Review, the original understanding of the 14th Amendment is actually at odds with the plurality opinion written in this case. It is. Um, uh, the, as we all know, the original Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government. In the case of Barron v. Baltimore, Chief Justice Marshall said 
the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment does not restrict the power of the city of Baltimore to take private property. It only applies to the feds. The 14th Amendment changed that, but it's not clear how. The original understanding of the 14th Amendment was that the Privileges or Immunities Clause protected some of the amendments in the Bill of Rights and also some other amendments, some unenumerated rights. But in Slaughterhouse, the Supreme Court rejected that interpretation. So going forward, the Supreme Court said, well, we can't rely on privileges and immunities. Let's shift over to the Due Process Clause. And for about 70 years, it was something called a selective incorporation jurisprudence, where basically they took one right, you know, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, clause by clause, and they basically incorporated everything. Everything but the Second Amendment and also uh, grand jury indictments, also civil jury trials. So in many senses, the opinion which Scalia, Alito, and Roberts and Kennedy joined was quite unoriginal. They basically relied on stare decisis and precedent saying, well, this is how we've been doing it for a long time. Let's not rock the boat. Thomas's opinion was quite faithful to the original meaning of the Constitution. He said, listen, this entire substance of due process jurisprudence has been a ruse. We're not going to subsume to this anymore, and I'm not going to I'm not going to join this opinion. And that was really the essence of what Thomas did. And that was really why, in some senses, Scalia, who's the uber-originalist, I've called the Prometheus originalism, is somewhat somewhat uh, hypocritical for joining that opinion. And he issued a very a lengthy concurrence, but with basically two sentences saying, well, I've done this before, too bad. He's used the word acquiesced in relation to his thoughts on substantive due process. And that, uh, I guess, was surprising and disheartening to a lot of people. Uh, it wasn't surprising to me. Um, actually, right after oral arguments, uh, Ilya and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington uh, Examiner basically saying Scalia is abandoning originalism. Uh, we could tell from his arguments during the case that he wasn't going to bite. Uh, we were kind of hoping that maybe he would say, wow, I have been bashing substantive due process for the better part of 30 years. I hate Casey. I hate Lawrence. I hate all these other substantive due process cases. Yet, when he had this opportunity to strike down this, this substantive due process and use a uh, protector right. He likes guns. He likes guns. We thought maybe he'll take the bait. But he was really afraid of opening up a Pandora's box and the fear that privileges or immunities can just be a new vessel for those on the, uh, those on the left to invigorate new uh, positive rights into the Constitution that were not intended to be there. And that was his underlying fear. And that's why he did what he did. Do you share that fear? No, uh, I don't. In fact, the article I wrote with, with uh, Ilya is called Keeping Pandora's Box Sealed. We actually provide a framework of how to have an originalist jurisprudence to welcome back the privileges or immunities clause into our into our constitutional framework. Uh, and if you actually look at the plurality opinion, they they didn't use what we recommended, but it's a very similar way of approaching where we only look at the rights that were deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, those rights which were understood in the 1860s to be of the fundamental nature, these rights which were, you know, incidental and implicit in our in our freedom and liberty as citizens of a free government. Uh, and if they would have taken a similar approach, I think a lot of these fears, these overblown fears would have been minimized. But the court punted on the issue. They let it sit. And now all we have is Justice Thomas's opinion. And the fear which Ilya and I projected and which I think will come true is that in future courts with perhaps more liberal justices, we will see Scalia's nightmare come true, whether or not he joined it. The court had an opportunity to take the right stand and put forth a, an originalist framework, and they passed on it. So now it's really up to someone else to take the first stab on it. And all we have is Thomas's concurrence with one lone vote. And that, going forward, will be, in my mind at least, the future of a 14th Amendment litigation. Josh Blackman is president and co-founder of the Harlan Institute. We spoke last week on Constitution Day. You can get your copy of Cato's Supreme Court Review at Cato.org.